Welcome to Boar Barigmi, Food for Thought. My name is Vamsi Reddy, and I'm here with my co-host, Akul Munjal. We're excited for you to join us as we take a deep dive into the contemporary topics of medicine, philosophy, psychology, ethics, and so much more. This is Akul Munjal. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are medical students and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast reflect any organization or institution. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Borborig Me, everyone. Today we have Vaidehi Gajar, who's kind of a micro-celebrity in the South Indian community here. And it's kind of crazy. We've met a few times, and just the amount of influence she has through Brown Girl Magazine, through her mental health advocacy, is kind of amazing and insane. So we want to take the time to um, interview her and her amazing personality for our podcast. So Vaidehi, could you please introduce yourself, as well as the journey and how you got here today? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, it's great to be here. Um, so yeah, my name is Baby. I am 25 years old. I am currently a staff writer and the editor of Health and Human Rights at Brown Girl Magazine. And I'm also involved in a few different um, South Asian mental health organizations. Um, so I guess all of this kind of started out probably somewhere around my sophomore year of undergrad. Um, I was in a very bad place at that point in my life, and writing is what I kind of turned to, um, to kind of escape all of that. And um, when I did that, I mean, I didn't think that it would ever turn into anything like this. It was just kind of something for me and not really for the world. Um, But that's how it ended up starting. And um, I kind of worked my way up in terms of, you know, getting the right platforms to write, getting the right platforms to share my voice, stuff like that. Um, So I started out literally just screenshotting the notes section of my phone and posting it to my social media. Um, And I think probably like a year or two after I started doing that, I eventually decided to apply to be a writer for um, a company called Odyssey Online, which everyone I think has seen like Facebook ads for this platform like multiple times. Um, <laughs> but after after a while, I, I realized you know that there is like a platform for specifically South Asians, and that's when I realized like hey like that would be really cool to you know actually represent my identity when I write um, and actually get it out to the audience that may understand it the best um or the I guess the way that I would in my head um and so a while later I did decide to apply to be a writer at Brown Girl Magazine and I didn't hear anything back for like five months and so I was convinced like I didn't make it um but early 2017 I finally got an email and they wanted me to join and that's when it really, I guess, kicked off for me. Um, I I think I wrote, wrote, just wrote and did nothing else for probably about a year or so. And then um, I was given the opportunity to, to become the um, editor of the old series that we used to have called Brown Boy slash Brown Girl of the Month. Um, And then just recently, I took over the health and human rights team, um, and I'm the editor now. So 
that's kind of how I got here in a nutshell. Um, it's, I guess, I think there's like a lot more detail involved here and there, but that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned uh, was Brown Girl Magazine, and you would think that that's pretty self-explanatory <laughs> based off the name, but could you just go into a little bit of detail about like what exactly that is? Yeah, absolutely. So Brown Girl Magazine is actually a um, online publication dedicated to South Asians. Um, it's by South Asians for South Asians. So everything that you read about on our website, um, everything that you so see on our social media is geared towards um, South Asians. So that's kind of what Brown, Brown Girl is about. It's, we, we call it our stomping ground for South Asians. Gotcha. And as part of the health and human rights team, what exactly does that mean? What does that entail? What do you do? So with that, um, basically what I do is I manage um, the health and human rights team. I help writers put their pieces together. Um, I kind of am the first sort of person they go to for approval. Um, I kind of edit their pieces for content, grammar, um, you know, anywhere from like the simplest stuff to kind of the biggest stuff before it gets passed on to another editor for a second read. Or um, in this case right now, like our um, COVID pieces, for example, that we have get passed on to our editor-in-chief, who is also our CEO. So um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I mean, um, I do still write here and there, but um, the majority of my time is spent um, just kind of helping other writers along and kind of getting their content out into the world. So you said you're kind of like the first line editor before other stuff goes on. So I don't know, are you familiar with stuff like Grammarly? I am. We do actually. So um, we operate off of WordPress. Um, so Grammarly is actually kind of built, built in to our um, system. So we kind of already use that. But the thing with Grammarly is that it's not always 100% accurate. So you actually have to be careful at times because it will change stuff that's actually there. So at what point do you think Grammarly will be able to take over your job? You know, honestly, at this point, I don't think that it will just because of the way it's, I've seen it operate so far. Um, like, there are things that obviously Grammarly will, like, correct and fix, but then, like, you know, I think in, like, certain instances, like, with spelling, it'll sometimes give, like, the British spelling over the, like, American spelling, and obviously we are an American-based company, so, like, <laughs> um, it would look a little bit weird <laughs> if we had, um, you know, British, uh, I guess, terminology in there, because I don't think you know, a lot of people here are used to that. Um, but other than that, I think it's a really good tool to have, even if, you know, not if, not even just if you're in journalism, but also if you're just, you know, a student or just trying to write an essay or something like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that your day, daytime job is um, an editor, but you start off as an author or even as a poet. And given that these are things that, and also coming into a, going into a profession that isn't the like standard STEM field or law or anything. Um, I'm sure that was difficult convincing your parents or navigating that situation. How did you get involved with this aspect of your life? And how did you navigate that situation with your home life? 
So what's interesting is that um, even though I do work as an editor, that's actually kind of my side job. I um, do work in healthcare um, during the day. So <laughs> that's what I do for, I guess, my living. Um, but as far as, I guess, you know, how the parental sort of um, factor played into all this, um, I mean, even still, like, there's still, like, pushback. And even in the beginning, um, because I wasn't very open about what I was doing, and I'm still very not very open about what I'm doing, um, there is you know, that pushback as to, well, what are you doing? Why, why are you, you know, wasting your time with stuff that, you know, you could be using your time for like other stuff. Um, and so that, you know, has always been a little bit difficult, like not just for my parents, but even like people in the community as well. Like even people like our age, um, have like posed that question as to like, why are you doing all this? Like, you know, why, why does it matter? And like I said, like this, this started out as being something for me. Um, when I realized, you know, that I could actually use this as a way to give back to people, um, that's when I kind of started to tune everything else out because I knew that I was helping a group of people that needed it. And at the time, like that's the only feedback that I really cared about. So I've kind of let that sort of positive force guide me instead of letting that negative force kind of take over. So early in your answer, if you don't feel comfortable talking about this, uh, feel free to, you know, just be like, whatever, it's okay. Um, you mentioned that you have a day job in healthcare. Uh, could you be a little, like, elaborate on that a little bit more and talk about how that's kind of, uh, influenced your writing and your editor job? Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually work in patient access um, at my local hospital currently. Um, you know, it's actually interesting because like from a very young age, I was completely like geared towards healthcare, like, you know, being a doctor, all that. So even when I was in like undergrad, like it was almost certain that I would become a doctor. Um, but when I realized that there were different ways to help people, um, other than, you know, being a doctor, I was like, you know, maybe this isn't what I want to do. Maybe there is another way for me to help people. And, you know, right now I'm just, um, you know, in school and all that. So this is just a way for me to get, you know, um, some money while I was in school full time, just working part time. Um, but with healthcare, you get to meet a lot of different people. And that's not just, um, you know, doctors or nurses or whoever. You also get to meet a lot of different patients. And just like with, you know, writing, you, you get a lot of different perspectives um, with that. So, you know, I guess the cross between writing and healthcare is that the fact that there's so many different voices out there and there's so many different experiences that need to be told. Um, and, you know, that's actually one thing that I really consider myself privileged to do is I'm able to tell, you know, um, the experiences of people that normally wouldn't have a voice. Um, 
and you know that's something that especially with with um covid because a lot of the stories i've been publishing recently um have a lot to do with covid and you know we're we're getting so many different perspectives um from like different parts of the world i know um one of the stories we got was from a girl living in china during the um pandemic and she was talking about her experience um and what that was like um so it's it's definitely a lot of perspective i see that um i guess you wouldn't see just on the surface and as a patient health advocate um you advocate a lot for their physical health but i'm sure that there's also a lot of uh, mental health advocacy going on as well how did you get involved in this avenue and then what does mental health advocacy mean to you so i initially got involved um like i said all of this kind of started after i joined brown girl um a few of the girls that i worked with um were starting up a uh, mental health organization with a few friends and um they just kind of casually posted in our facebook group that we had if anyone's interested in joining you know we're we're down to you know have new people and so at this point in my life i was definitely sort of hesitant to take risks but i still i guess saw it in myself to at least try and so um i ended up you know just messaging them and you know just kind of being like hey like i you know like to join or whatever and so um with that organization i started out as an ambassador i just, just kind of got to know the um scene of things a little bit and then i slowly worked my way up um to the development team at the time um and i was the eventually like when i after just just before i left i was um the senior outreach um development chair so um that's just with one organization obviously that kind of being a part of a mental health organization kind of exposes you to um what else is out there so once i joined that organization um you know meeting other people from other organizations kind of learning about what other people are about as well um kind of inspired me to um get involved in other places as well so um you know all the other organizations that i'm a part of um have came out came about in the same way and that um it's just a matter of connection and seeing that there are other ways to get involved um as far as what mental health advocacy means to me um i think for me it's something that's really important and personal just because of my own personal journey with it um you know i think when i started struggling with my mental health i think um a lot of the problem was that you know even like influencers and like stuff like that like you wouldn't see people really talking about mental health and um you know struggling during that time and kind of looking for an outlet um was difficult because you don't see anybody else talking about it you don't see anybody else um you know speaking about it or anything like that so like where do you turn and how do you know that there's resources out there i mean you really don't um but 
I think mental health advocacy is a way to provide those sort of paths to those resources, to those people to speak to. Um, and I think that's what that means to me. So one of the things you kind of touched on was the idea of connection. And I kind of just want to ask you a little bit more about that. And how has your uh, position as a mental health advocate, as an editor, how has that affected your personal life and your ability to connect with people? Well, I think at first glance, obviously, it does, you know, to the outside world, make me seem a little bit more credible, more, I guess, known. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I get people to try to see is, you know, behind all these positions, behind, you know, everything that I do, there's a, there was a person that was struggling, and that still is in a lot of ways. And I think that's the connection that a lot of people can sort of relate to is that behind every person, like everyone has a struggle that they're going through. And um, that's the connection I try to sort of bring out when I meet someone new is that, you know, it doesn't matter where I am in life. It doesn't matter where you are in life we're still connected on some level because of, you know, whatever reason, whatever sort of struggle you've gone through. We're, we're, we're in the same ocean, but we're on different boats. That's like a quote I've heard recently, but I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that the important thing is to try to understand their perspective. But I think there's a difference between the intellectual level of understanding someone's perspective and truly being able to connect and get them to open up. So in terms of bridging that gap, how do you go about just practical day-to-day -day things that you do to get people to open up and actually truly um, talk about themselves and feel like you can be there for them? So I think the one thing that I kind of do, because I think a lot of times people make other people feel crazy and then that kind of makes them not want to open up to them. And so, what I really try to do is just let them know that, you know, you're not necessarily crazy for how you're feeling. Um, and I also try to like, let them know that, you know, even if I don't necessarily understand what you're going through, I'm here to listen. And I think that's a very important sort of distinction to make is that you aren't always going to understand what someone's going through. You know, you're not always going to have like a personal sort of, connection to what what that person's exact experience is but at the same time you can be there and still listen to them as a south asian how do you reconcile both parts of your identity being a south asian and also being a mental health advocate especially when there's a stigma in the south asian community with mental health i think at the end of the day like especially now in my life i i realized that you can be both and not be any less than anybody so um and that's something that I kind of struggled for with like a really long time um so understanding that you know being South Asian and experiencing mental health issues are okay together I think is the biggest thing that I had to overcome and I think that's a lot of the problem with you know the community overcoming um, the same issue is the fact that, you know, 
our identity somehow doesn't support having mental health issues, which um, I think is detrimental overall. I mean, if you don't even acknowledge the problem, how are you going to solve it? I agree. And that opens up a segue into not just the fact that we acknowledge that there is a problem, but what are tools or ways that the community as a whole could get better at actually dealing with and addressing this problem? Well, like I said, the first thing to really do is acknowledge the problem. If you see someone struggling, talk to them, provide them with resources, find resources for them. Um, Obviously, don't overburden your own mental health, but um, if you have the capacity, if you have the bandwidth to sit down and talk to somebody to help them find resources, do that. Because I think, you know, when it comes to mental health, the biggest thing that is going to help us is standing together and combating the issue together, not just leaving someone on their own to sort of just deal with. So one of the things that you mentioned that I think is kind of interesting is, you know, support them as best as you can, as long as you have the bandwidth to do that. And I think that that's a really interesting point because, Oftentimes being there for people, everybody wants to be there for other people, but it's undeniable uh, that that does take a toll on the other person that's doing that. So could you just kind of talk about that and how, you know, you've maybe you've had some personal experiences with being close to the edge and how you dealt with that? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, you know, it's important to understand that even if you are the one kind of talking to someone with issues with mental health, it's, you are, you are, you are, you know, entitled to, to your own mental health. You have your own mental health. And, you know, in, I guess, sort of the counseling world, there's a saying that you can only help someone as much as they want to help themselves. Um, If, you know, that specific person is at a point where they don't want to help themselves at all, It's hard to do, but at times you will have to give up and move on with that because there's only so much that you can do. You can, you know, give them the resources, you can talk to them, but if at some point it gets to be too much, then that shouldn't be on the person listening to have to carry that guilt around that, you know, I wasn't able to do this for them, I wasn't able to do that for them. Because at the end of the day, that's that person's responsibility to get better at a certain point. Yeah, I think that that really resonated with me when you said that a person only, you can only help a person as much as they want to help themselves. When I was in college, we had a fraternity brother that was, that had a pretty bad meth addiction. He'd been going through this addiction for like probably five plus years. And, you know, no matter what we did, he, you know, always went back to the needle. But then, after we, um, he was basically staying at a fraternity house for a while. And then eventually we basically were at that level of bandwidth where, you know, we couldn't do anything else for him. So we were like, look, man, uh, you know, you can't stay here anymore. And then I think a few years later, he's sober now and he's doing really well. But I think that you can't help people if they're not in the right state to be helped. And it was, it's unfortunate sometimes that you have to let people go and oftentimes that that is going to make the short-term situation worse for them 
but I mean, it's just a reality. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you, I think the thing is like, you have to let sometimes people hit rock bottom for them to come back up on their own. And I think that's exactly what you described um, with, with your friend um, is that he had to hit rock bottom on his own and realize that, Hey, I have a serious problem for him to come back up and, you know, get sober and get his life back together. Yeah. And that's a very powerful story. When we're talking about mental health and we're talking about the providers, the mental health advocates, and we mentioned briefly about how it does take a toll on the person who's doing the providing. And it's kind of like, there's a saying, it says, you have to fill up your own cup before you start filling up someone else's. And so given that, what are ways that people who are trying to help other people can keep replenishing their mental health and continue to stay well in these times? So I think one of the biggest things is taking a break from, you know, if, if you're directly dealing with someone that's dealing with, you know, mental health issues or mental illness, kind of taking a break from all that self-care as well. Self-care is super important. And um, I think it's important to understand that self-care can come in many different forms. It's not like, oh, self-care is just this one thing that, you know, everyone has to do. Um, you know, for some people, self-care can be like skydiving, I don't know. Or, <laughs> um, you know, for some people, it could be reading or writing or painting or whatever it may be. Um, but I think, you know, taking time for yourself, kind of doing the things that make you happy, that put you at a calmer state um, and having like mean, meaningful conversations with um, people that, you know, make you, make you feel better, make you, um, you know, feel calmer, um, stuff like that, I think is super important for the person that's on the other side. Um, so. So you've been an author, you've been an editor. Has there been, any particular piece uh, that you think has particularly struck out to you and been like, wow? So one of my favorite books is A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khaled Hosseini. Um, it is literally my favorite book of all time. Um, and it's, it's a very, I guess, simple read. It's not like a very sort of hard to read book. Um, but I think, um, you know, even though, like I was kind of talking about, um, in the beginning, like you can't always relate to a certain experience that someone's having. Um, you can all sometimes relate to the emotion that they're experiencing. And I think that, um, you know, with ev anyone, like at, at any point in our lives, there's been times where we've experienced loneliness, we've experienced sadness, we've been happy, sad, whatever. Um, and I think this book really brings all of those emotions together in a really beautiful way. And that's why I love that book so much. Thank you for sharing. And I mean, I've also read A Thousand Sledded Sons and it's an, it's an amazing book. And I completely agree with you that I think it's uh, a vital message for our audience to just um, be there for themselves. Is there any powerful story that either you or someone that you've been with helped um, has experienced that kind of shows resilience and shows that as long as you keep trying that you can move past any obstacle? 
you know, actually that now that I kind of think about it, there is one piece that I wrote um, for the Washington Post um, a while ago. Um, and it's actually kind of crazy because um, when I like wrote this piece, I never thought it would um, get to this point or anything like that. But um, one thing that ended up happening because of that piece was um, a student that was working at a um, psychiatric hospital in Boston. Um, the hospital's name is McLean Hospital. Um, actually reached out to me and um, he he said that he had been actually reading my piece to um, his patients um, because he worked in a depression and anxiety crisis unit. And so um, he just wanted me to kind of know that, you know, this perspective that you're putting out isn't one that we get to hear often but we have so many South Asians that come in and they don't have a perspective to kind of relate to. And he was just telling me like, that's the you know specific reason why I wanted my patients to have this is because they would have someone to actually relate to, even if it wouldn't be in person. Um, and so for me, like that, that was huge because, you know, hearing that you're serving sort of an underrepresented group of people and you know helping them indirectly even um is just a really good feeling that's a really interesting story and it's crazy how you got published in the washington post especially at such a young age so congratulations on that um so we re really have enjoyed talking to you but before we let you go is there any uh key lesson or takeaway that you want to share with our audience to make them make maybe a big change or a small change in their life? I think the one lesson that everyone can learn is that while there's togetherness and loneliness, there's togetherness and healing. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, while everyone's kind of bound by at some point in their lives experiencing loneliness or experiencing sadness, we're all even more so bound by the fact that you know we're together in our struggles regardless of the fact that they may be different regardless of the fact that you know they may be on different levels we're still all bound by the fact that we're struggling at some point in our lives and you know we can always use that to kind of relate to everybody around us it's really powerful thank you so much for joining us by Thank you guys for having me.